The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I am Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Melissa Abbott. She is Vice President of Culinary Insights for the Hartman Group, a leading consumer culture consultancy and research firm based in Bellevue, Washington. At the Hartman Group, Ms. Abbott leads trends research and dishes up the latest in food culture and its impact on the food industry. Ms. Abbott holds a BS in communication from Emerson College and an MS in food marketing from the National University of Ireland. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks so much, Melinda. It's a pleasure to join you today. I have been a fan of the Hartman Group for longer than I can remember. I am a trend junkie. And I think it's really interesting and important for those of us who work, whether we're talking about the food industry, the public health profession, it's important to keep up with what matters to the public at large. And I can't think of a better topic to cover as we enter this really critical decade. I feel differently about this one than I have in the past. And so the kinds of research you're doing, especially on sustainability in the food system, I think is incredibly important. But tell me, how did you become interested in tracking trends in the food industry and among consumers? Well, I've always been fascinated with food since I was a small child. And I had, after gone on to finish my undergraduate degree, I had gone to culinary school after the Peace Corps and just really became enamored with how food is grown and how people basically relate to the food that they eat. So as much as I enjoyed cooking in restaurants and the lifestyle that that afforded me and learning so much in that sector, really what I was most fascinated by was how food was being grown and how consumers were just kind of engaging with different aspects of the food that they consume and what it meant to them. Where were you in the Peace Corps? I was actually in Estonia in the Baltics. So I had a very limited, there was a very limited supply of grocery stores at the time. This was in the late 90s. So I had to do a lot of bartering and things like that for produce and for grains and all kinds of things with my neighbors in exchange for English lessons. So I learned a lot about the growing seasons and how farmers in Eastern Europe tend to really approach things from a more biodiverse and using a lot of cover crops and just the whole diversity of the food supply. I became really fascinated with it at that time. Mm -hmm. You have authored over a decade's worth of reports on trends in the food industry. You've looked at sales data, national retail audits, menu tracking, You've done quantitative and qualitative consumer research, including focus groups and shop-alongs. Tell me how your research works exactly. Well, here at the Hartman Group, we really are the voice of the consumer. So how we approach this ability to be able to understand what's happening in food culture through the lens of the consumer and then be able to work with our clients to 
translate consumer behavior and food culture into growth opportunities is we conduct surveys on a variety of different topics throughout the year. And then we also use qualitative research as well. So when we approach a topic, say health and wellness or sustainability, which is just some of our syndicated studies that we do here at the Hartman Group that are not necessarily custom reports, right, that anyone can purchase these reports. For example, the health and wellness report, we survey at least 2,500 to 3,000 people across the United States. And then we also conduct qualitative research with consumers across the U.S., obviously a little bit smaller number, but that's where we can get those really in-depth insights. And we're able to go into their homes, peek through their cupboards and pantries, even into their car consoles and figure out what's in their desk drawer that they snack on at lunchtime. So we were able to really look at the things that are happening outside of just the everyday and see how they're impacting the foods that people are choosing and how American culture and food culture itself is guiding people along on this journey that is not just about health and wellness, but how sustainability is also impacting decisions that people are making today. So from that qualitative and quantitative research, we're able to really get a better understanding about where food culture is shifting towards. How do you find these people? I'm assuming you're reaching a wide demographic, so you're reaching people with higher and lower incomes. The way our phones are anymore, it's so difficult to find people. How do you target those 2,500 to 3,000 people who are going to give you a picture of the population at large? Well, luckily there are, for the survey that you're, you're talking about, for the quantitative aspect, there are a number of outfits around the United States and globally, because when we do global research, we also reference these partners as well, that do all of the recruiting in terms of we develop a questionnaire and they're experts at being able to contact the appropriate consumers for our studies through our questionnaires to make sure that they are appropriate. So, And you're absolutely right, because more and more people are Nobody answers their phone anymore, let's put it that way, especially if it's a number you don't recognize. So we're able to contact people through social media and basically through use of email campaigns and things like that. That's from our qualitative perspective that we've had to kind of shift gears. But for the surveys, the partners that we use are experts at that. So they're able to help us essentially to recruit folks from a wide variety of demographics. And sometimes we need very tight specifics and they're able to help us with that. So that's the wonderful thing there. And we have our own in-house recruiting department here at the Hartman Group. We've had nearly 20 years now. So we have quite an impressive database of consumers from around the United States based on our segmentation that we use here at the Hartman Group that helps us to identify the appropriate consumers that we need to speak with. And who writes the questions? Who writes the questions? We have a number of extremely talented folks with academic backgrounds in questionnaire design. So those are the folks that um, they typically come from anthropology and sociology backgrounds, typically have PhDs, and they are the ones who are experts at writing these questionnaires. So they're really very skilled at this, and they're able to develop questionnaires that get at the heart of what we're trying to understand. The reason why I ask this question is because there's a whole psychology behind questionnaires. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when I see survey results, which is often what is just distributed to the average Joe, 
I always step back and say, I wonder how the question was framed. Mm-hmm. And from my years in working in extension and nutrition education, I know that part of our strategy was to state questions so that they actually were educational. So stating them in the positive, for example, you know, something that we wanted somebody to take away. So there is a real psychology to question writing, and I think it can influence survey results. And this is why I'm trying to tease out the finer points of what you're doing, because the results are truly critical in product design, say, or in, gosh, any number of results that we're looking at politically, even if we're going to design a policy, we want to make sure that those survey questions are phrased just right. So it's interesting to hear who is doing the creation of those questions and what the theories are behind that. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so important that we typically don't include people with backgrounds in nutrition to develop the surveys, that they have more backgrounds in sociology. So it's more of a neutral approach to questionnaire design. Yes. So for example, when we would, you know, like what ingredients are you seeking and avoiding? It's very neutral. Oh, that's great. That we can get the most accurate understanding of how consumers are shifting their behavior. Right. And the dietician might say, are you trying to avoid sugar and salt? Right. <laughs> Something like that. Right. That's great. Yeah. Open-ended questions are the best. Now, you also mentioned that you do shop-alongs. You go with people to the grocery store. Do you think that they behave differently when they've got somebody watching them? Of course they do. <laughs> of course they do. And that is part of our training, too. I mean, my background and my training was to be able to ask the right questions and be able to observe the consumer in the environment and really get an understanding rather than just kind of like go on a shopping trip with them. There are certain questions and behaviors that we look for that a layperson might not necessarily be able to spot the way myself or my colleagues would be able to. Well, it sounds like a lot of fun and your reports are great. And I just want to let our listeners know that if you are curious about looking at any of the research summaries You've got great short infographics, which I know are very popular right now, one-pagers where you've got images with a few facts. You can find those at www.hartman-group.com, and I will provide a link to your organization, Melissa, so that people can look at some of the great work that you're doing. Well, you are just freshly from looking at some trend data, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that. We also had consulted before the interview about some issues that I'm really interested in just in terms of climate and how we are going to move forward. I know you've looked at the importance of regenerative agriculture. You've looked at organic and natural shopping trends, which I'd like to dive into this new plant-based craze that we're seeing. And I was really curious to get your understanding of how social media has impacted our food choices as well. So what would you like to dive into first? Mm -hmm. I would say that the most interesting thing that we are thinking about as we have just now entered a new decade or we're fully into the new decade in some ways of 2020 It's very interesting because what we were seeing here at the Hartman Group over the last couple of years with what we term the more progressive consumer, the person who's out there who's been shopping organic and really knows a little bit more about the issues than more of a mainstream consumer, is that from our clients we were hearing for a number of years is that you either have your health and wellness consumer and then you have your sustainability-oriented consumer. 
And we've been saying for the last few years, like, they're becoming one and the same. Mm. So the person who was really more interested in this idea of making sure that the their ingredient label was clean and that, you know, it had the certain uh, right amount of fat grams, low sugar grams, probiotics, et cetera, our clients tended to think that those consumers weren't as interested in sustainability. I mean, it seems kind of funny to imagine that, but... That's the reality is that, you know, you had your sustainability consumers who were much more interested in recyclable packaging and more and more interested in things like grass-fed and other more farm-level distinctions. But now we're starting to see that this has really become one and the same, that you can't have one kind of consumer who's just interested in health without the implications of sustainability and really at this point now, we're realizing that it's not just sustainability. It's like we can't sustain what we have. We actually have to regenerate what we've lost in order to even be sustainable. So that's really where we're at right now in terms of trying to understand where food culture is headed and where food trends are rooted at this stage. I am so glad to know this because I too see two different veins where we've got some individuals who are totally focused on self and personal health. And part of the reason why I do this program is to help nudge that thinking beyond the plate, to think about how we eat not only affects us, but the greater planetary health as well, and that how all of these are connected. So I'm really glad to hear that you're seeing that as well. I need to just take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Melissa Abbott. She is Vice President of Culinary Insights for a fascinating research group called the Hartman Group. They are based in Bellevue, Washington. All right, so let's take a deeper dive into some of the some of the findings that you've had from your surveys. And as we launch into that, let me ask you a quick question. It's always been sort of front and center for me that surveys consistently show that price and convenience and taste are the three drivers for food choices. In your looking at the sustainability data and more current research, Would you say that price, convenience, and taste are still the three leading elements in food decisions? It's really shifting. And one thing that we do know is that it's kind of like really this idea of what we consider the new value paradigm. When you think about what value means to consumers these days, the idea of value has shifted and it continues to shift. When we think about the traditional notions of value, it is clearly about cost saving. And when we think about being a good steward to your family and making sure that you're getting the right price for things, that will continue to be of prominence to the average shopper. But what we're seeing now is that consumers are shifting how they want to spend their dollars and who they want to spend their dollars with. So just because something is of the lowest cost doesn't mean that it is of the best value. So that is something very specific. And also what we know is that what our palates perceive as tasty is shifting as well. So this is America. We are well known around the world for our appreciation of indulgence foods, salt, fat, and sugar. We'll continue to to some extent. The average consumer's palate is indeed shifting. And so what was perceived as being salty and delicious and chips and donuts and things like that, We're seeing that the consumer today is taking a different idea in terms of what is tasty, what is delicious. 
and it can be the idea of something that organic, for example, this is, I find this to be quite fascinating, is that when we think about the boomer generation, when we survey them, when we ask them what are the benefits of organic, well, they say it's a safer product because it hasn't grown with chemicals. Whereas when we ask millennials, they say, well, it's a tastier product. And that the value there is that it's in tastier. And then safety is also an aspect of it, but they believe that it's fresher and tastier. And what's interesting about that is the boomers, as they were growing up, and they were, you know, essentially the pioneers of the organic movement. Um, so a lot to thank that generation for, for really kind of pioneering this shift in growing and making cleaner food more democratic and more available. A lot of times what was happening is the organic produce or products that were available weren't always that tasty. They could have oftentimes been a little bit older. The apples might not have looked as fresh because there weren't as many consumers seeking them out to purchase. So you had to go out of your way to find them. So from the boomer perspective, it is more about safety, less about taste, whereas millennials are so much more accessibility to organics. So they see it as, gosh, you know, organic food is tastier. There isn't a wax coating on it. And you can actually taste more nuance in flavor in these products. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see that generationally, we're seeing a shift in terms of what this value is, what taste really represents to differing consumers from these life stages, if you yeah. will. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I think that if I look at where people purchase food, Over the last decade, we have seen a real explosion of farmers markets. And it's true that there are still pockets, especially in urban areas, as well as in rural areas, surprisingly enough, where the access to food is really limited. I mean, it may be a stop and shop gas station where a person really shops for most of their food, which is so unfortunate. But then we also have people who are really privileged and able to shop at farmer's markets. And that's where I think we start to see, oh my goodness, food that is fresher is so much tastier. And I think we've also, we're starting to move away and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm glad to see consumers embracing less perfection. And I think Part of the reason for that is the food waste focus and how we really don't want to be wasting so much food, 30 to 40%, for example, in America, the food goes to waste, which is such a crime. And part of that, I think, has been because people are so concerned about how perfect a certain fruit or vegetable might look. Tell me what you're seeing in your survey trends on this. Yeah, that's an, uh, definitely a shift occurring across the board that consumers are actually more skeptical now when Mm. they see things that look too perfect. And this comes from a a time when we were really enamored for a couple of decades with the idea of products that were safe and safety from the 50s, 60s, 70s into the 80s was very much oriented towards things that didn't have a lot of human interaction and that they came off a conveyor belt and that they weren't touched in some way and that they were very uniform. So this industrialization was providing a sense of security in many ways. Well, we kind of went too far in that direction and lost that human connection, if you will. And when we think about all of the agrochemicals and other food preservatives that crept in along the way, consumers have now, of all walks of life, have said it's gone too far. And so the idea that things that look a little bit more unique, that they're also finding that things that 
are not necessarily as uniform tend to taste a little bit better or have a more unique flavor profile. So this is what we're seeing in terms of consumers really shifting the paradigm in terms of what is acceptable to make its way into their grocery shopping cart. Mm -hmm. And I want to direct consumers again to the HartmanGroup.com website. You've got a great infographic. It's titled Sustainability in Action, Transparency and Trust. And it's great because it goes through what are consumers really looking for to determine whether a company is responsible and what are people specifically looking for? Like, how is a company taking action to reduce environmental impact? How does a company treat animals used in its products? So all of these things fold into, as you mentioned, this changing paradigm of what people are looking for. You did, however, mention something that is very interesting to me, and that is this idea of a clean label. And I think personally, there is so much confusion in the marketplace around food labels. We had the organic label, okay. Then we also have natural slapped onto labels, which is very confusing for consumers. Many times I've seen research showing that consumers actually think natural is superior to organic when there are no safeguards really for that natural label, although there have been lawsuits. And then you've got the non-GMO project. You've got another label now that's coming out. I think you had a report online about it's the glyphosate-free stamp also, so yet another layer of protection. And sometimes I think consumers get to a point where they're saturated with all the labels and they become just a sea of confusion. Do you see that as well? Absolutely. So what's interesting is that we hear consumers just say they're throwing their hands up and saying like, what clean means to one consumer is completely different for what it means to another consumer. And it depends what their aspirations are, essentially, and how involved they are with the foods that they are choosing for themselves, for their family, and you know what their goals are, essentially, too. So when we think about how it's really shifted, and I think I mentioned this a little bit ago, is that what we had for a number of years, uh, that they were all of these health claims and health attributes, that they, whether it was fat-free and low sugar. And now what we're starting to see is that it's less about what's actually in the product itself and what it does for you in your digestive system and so forth, but what those farm-level distinctions are. Because that is really what is becoming more and more compelling to the consumer because it tells them more about the journey of that product, even all the way back to the seed itself. And when we think about the glyphosate, the glyphosate-free seal and that claim, because what it means is we had consumers at least a decade ago talking to us about choosing gluten-free products and mm. the reasons that they were choosing gluten-free products. And now when we go back and sometimes we'll interview consumers that we may have interviewed five, seven, ten years ago, and very interesting when we think about the gluten-free category is that they'll say, well, I was having digestive issues or I had this crazy rash and so I wound up giving up gluten and it cleared up for quite some time. But then they started to eat all of these packaged gluten-free products that had ingredients in them that might not necessarily have been that 
helpful for their digestion, right? That they were still hyper-processed. There still might have been a lot of sugar in these products. And so now some of those consumers have evolved to say, I don't think it was necessarily the gluten that was the problem. It was actually all of the processing. And so now they're starting to look for things that are beyond organic, in fact. So that's where we start to see claims like glyphosate-free, GMO-free, of course, would be another example that gives them more assurance that the product itself was grown, not just processed, but actually grown in a way that will help them with long-term health issues, whether to mitigate or to reverse and to avoid other types of diseases, whether it's diabetes and cancer. These are all the types of things that consumers are very concerned about these days. So even just thinking about something that was gluten-free, they thought it was just going to help them personally. They're realizing that this is a journey is more about it's actually how we're growing foods from the seed and how the soil is treated and even to the level of who the farmer is and what their passion is around growing foods and uh, maintaining soil health. So it's really kind of become this much more holistic perspective. Mm, Yeah. And I think that the marketing around these products is so confusing. I remember a woman telling me that she was buying non-GMO bread, but she was so confused about why that particular brand, even though it said non-GMO, it still contained residues of glyphosate. So And I think that we're seeing non-GMO being slapped on things that were never genetically modified. So somebody actually went into a whole food store and asked my friend who was doing some nutrition education, are these sweet potatoes GMO free? And we don't have any GMO sweet potatoes. So the idea that people really don't know what is genetically modified and what isn't and how different labels differentiate between the different agricultural methods, I think is a big area where we could be working together, where people who are doing the consumer research and then people who are doing the the nutrition education could really partner on making our educational efforts even better. So again, your research is really fantastic. You had mentioned before we started talking that you had just looked at at some new data. And I'm wondering if I'm not sitting here with it. It's the 2019 Food Culture Year in Review. And one of the things that I wanted to pull out, there are many, like I'm very interested, for example, in the plant-based and alternative protein movement. But to me, the thing that really struck hard was the fact that anxiety is the top Mm -hmm. health concern from climate change to politics. We only have a couple of minutes left. What do you want to say about that? This was a tremendous finding for us this past year. I've been working with this survey. Every two years, we conduct this survey. For nearly 16 years now, I've been looking at these results. And weight was always number one. The others would kind of fall in and out and kind of shift. But weight was always the top issue for consumers. And this was the very first year that stress and anxiety was the clear front runner. And I think that that really indicates where we are as a culture right now and that whether it's social media and our lack of connection to community is really creating health issues for us that are not just physical, but they're mental, which they're are very much one and the same because they manifest in unique ways. And food has a tremendous role to play in that. So what we find is that more and more consumers today are looking to their food to perform at a heightened level for them because of all of these stress and anxiety conditions that consumers are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. So food really is 
the thing that consumers are looking towards rather than pharmaceuticals to help to make their day a little bit more tolerable, if you will. And that lack of community is something that is really a problem within this issue as well. This conversation has been incredibly important. And I could talk to you for another hour. We could certainly do a follow-up program as more results come in. But unfortunately, we've got to close. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Melissa Abbott, Vice President of Culinary Insights for the Hartman Group, based in Bellevue, Washington. Please visit their website if you find any of this information fascinating. It's simply www.hartman-group.com, and that's H-A-R-T. M-A-N. Thank you so much, Melissa. This has been fascinating, and I hope many more people will visit your fascinating research online. Thank you so much, Melinda. This has been a real pleasure.